The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 to 11. Joy of the redeemed. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will give it the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth from the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where the jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And, the, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on this way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord had rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 11, Jesus and John the Baptist, verses 2 to 11, uh, page 976. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one who, about whom is written, 
I will see, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of woman there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Lord God, we pray today that we may see all those signs of your grace in your world. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The reading from Matthew, which is page 976 in the Church Bible, if you want to, just to see where I'm going. Uh, Did you find this a very odd reading? Uh, Odd reading to choose just a week and a half before Christmas? Uh, And did you at any point think, we did John the Baptist last week? And actually, I think we did John the Baptist the week before that as well. Um, we're coming to Christmas and nothing about a baby in a manger nothing about preparing for the birth of Jesus and not an angel in sight John is in prison that's what you get his friends and his disciples listen to him rehearsing the same old question basically did I get it wrong is he the wrong man and not the Messiah at all not the one who should come And has my ministry been a complete waste of time? And eventually somebody says to him, look John, you will never know the answer to that question unless you go to Jesus and ask him. But actually you can't do that because you're in prison. But you could ask some of us to go and we'll ask the question for you. Would it help in some way? And John says, yes, I think it would help. And that's exactly what happened. Some of his friends and disciples went and asked, are you the one who should come or do we look for somebody else? So why did the people who devised the readings for the Church of England and other churches, why did they choose this passage a week and a half before Christmas? I'm suggesting it's because in the middle of all the festivities, Christmas can be a searching and depressing time. Years ago, the Sunday Times produced a breakdown chart, which gave a lot of uh, things that happened to people in the normal way of living, and they gave them a number of points towards a nervous breakdown. So that if you moved, you got 40 points towards a nervous breakdown. And I was interested when I read it. It It was a bit of fun, I think. But Christmas was there, and Christmas said 30 points. Not a bad Christmas, not a Christmas where the relatives behave very badly indeed. No, just an ordinary Christmas scored 30 points on the Sunday Times breakdown chart. And the truth is that there are a lot of people out there who can't wait for the Christmas season to be over. I remember reading in the paper years ago a woman's report on her Christmas day, And it ended, so in the end, I picked up the Christmas tree, took it out in the garden and chucked it across the lawn. She had had enough of her family, of Christmas and everything. And maybe that's why 
they chose this reading of all the readings. The passage in Matthew reminds us that people can be disappointed in Jesus. You can walk towards Christmas deeply troubled about the state of the world. You can walk towards Christmas worried about the apparent lack of interest and will to do with the future of our planet. You can walk towards Christmas upset and sad about the persecution of Christians in at least 125 countries in the world. You can walk towards Christmas not really knowing what on earth is happening as we approach a general election. Why doesn't God do something? And on a personal level, questions will arise as well and would be sharpened up by Christmas. Questions about who we are, why we're in the state that we're actually in, where we're going in life, and questions about the way in which faith reacts with the way we're feeling. Why haven't our prayers for my mother been answered? Why has my child withdrawn from the family? Why is our nation turning its back on God? John the Baptist thought, I preached faithfully about the coming of the righteous judge. I said he would lay the axe to the root of the tree. I said he would baptize with spirit and with fire. But nothing seems to have changed. Why has he done nothing remotely like spirit and fire? And I am in prison because I spoke the truth to power. I spoke in the name of God to an evil king. And I paid the price. Did I get it wrong? Now I want to look at three ways in which Jesus responds to that problem. Which is John's problem. But may well be yours as well. How does Jesus deal with this for John and then for us? The first thing I notice that it comes at the very end of the passage is that Jesus recognizes our weakness. Jesus does not condemn John, you notice. He understands. A few years ago, the director of the Evangelical Alliance wrote an article which became famous and the title of the article was, Do You Feel Let Down by Jesus? In our reading of the Beatitudes, is, in our reading, uh, we get a Beatitude. Now, we know about the Beatitudes. We have series of sermons on the Beatitude. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. This is a Beatitude that's hardly ever preached on. And Jesus puts it at the end. Blessed are those who are not scandalized by me. Blessed are those, and I don't cause them to stumble. There will be difficulties and crises of faith. And Jesus says, I understand that. And blessed is the person who's never upset by me. But I understand, and I want to hold you tight. Jesus recognizes our weakness. The second thing I pick out 
little bit further up the passage, is that Jesus loves us anyway. Jesus has not criticized John, you'll notice. He declares there has never been anyone in the history of the world to equal John in the whole line of the prophets. Jesus was that man who was the Elijah that was promised in the Old Testament. That's John, the one who comes just before the Messiah comes. He honors the work that John has done. He does not criticize John. John has done wonderful things in his life. And in the same way, he says for us, I understand your sadness and your difficulties. I understand the crisis of faith that comes from time to time. And I love you anyway. And he honors us. So I guess that to many, many, many people, Jesus is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. There's two ways in which Jesus deals with it then. He recognizes our weakness and he loves us anyway and honors us. But I want to spend more time on the guts of the passage, which is the third. And that is the third way Jesus deals with it is he shows us the bigger picture. Jesus says to John's disciples, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. All these things, John, were predicted in Isaiah. John the Baptist knows his Old Testament very well, I guess, extremely well. And Jesus said, you didn't spot it, did you? All these things are predicted in Isaiah and they are happening now. John is concentrating on what he feels at this moment and what he thinks should happen at this moment. And Jesus, I guess, says to him, you're not wrong to preach judgment. Evil kings will be judged one day. But open your eyes and your ears and hear what else is going on. The kingdom of God is breaking in. It's not all bleak. I started to look at this passage about two and a half weeks ago, I would think, just reading it over and over and over, and it suddenly occurred to me, isn't it time you did the same? And I thought, I'm going to spend a fortnight, perhaps two, three weeks up to Christmas, trying the experiment of looking for grace in the middle of darkness. Doing, in other words, what Jesus told John to do. I hear everywhere that Christianity is fading away. This is a message that is hammered out every week in Pullman's Dark Materials on television Sunday evening. Another three episodes to go and it hammers away. Christianity is old is the message and evil and dying. And then quite casually, I happened to open a magazine, it wasn't a Christian magazine, and I saw a third of the population of South Korea is Christian. That cheered me up no end. And everyone's telling me about 2.5% are Christian in England. It's good to know that in South Korea, 33% are Christian. Then I found, again quite casually, that there are over 58 million Protestant Christians and rising in China. There are probably double that number of Christians already if you count other, like the Catholics, enormous number of Catholics. 
uh, are there in China. And it is predicted that by 2025, which isn't very long to go actually, there will be more Christians in China than there will be in the United States of America. I really started to bubble now. It is not all bleak. And then I discovered it's just a pure gift from God. And if, if you weren't born in Tottenham and didn't live in Tottenham, you won't understand what this meant to me. But I discovered that the first new purpose-built Anglican church in London in 40 years was opened in Tottenham just about 18 months ago. And it's called St. Francis at the Engine Room. Don't ask me why, I haven't got a clue, but it sounds a really good name, doesn't it, for a church. And the MP for the brother at Borough of Tottenham issued a correction, he said. Somebody in number 10 Downing Street once said, we don't do God. I have always been clear, here in Tottenham we do God. And I certainly do God. Amen. And if you were born in Tottenham and went to school in Tottenham and weep over the football results every week, then you have no idea how that speaks to my heart. Look for grace. It's there if you bother to look. We are fed a diet of pessimism. Look at the bigger picture. What do I hear? Anybody who's anybody is an atheist. And out come the names Richard Dawkins, Dan Snow, Peter Tatchell, Polly Toynbee, Philip Pullman. But then I glanced at a magazine and I discovered to my surprise Tom Hanks is a committed Christian. Nicole Kidman is a committed Christian. Denzel Washington is a Christian. So is Justin Bieber. I'm not sure who Justin Bieber is. No, don't be silly. Of course I know, of course I know Justin Bieber is. And he is a Christian. And it lifts my soul. Look at the bigger picture. Well, you won't find any scientists that are Christians anyway. That is another myth that goes around. This time I started to search. Jesus says, seek and you will find. So I went and sought. And I found uh, several websites, Wikipedia and others, uh, which lists hundreds and hundreds of scientists who are Christians. I thought, what's the qualification for getting on this list? And it says, persons in this list should have their Christianity as relevant and central to their notable activities and public life and must have publicly identified themselves as Christians. I was interested in the biologists, long line of them, interested in the chemists, and I thought that... What about, the, uh, what about the physics people? There'll be no Christians there. Well, there's 54 at least. And they're only there because they have publicly done something fantastic in the world of science and also declared themselves and identified themselves as Christians. Look at the bigger picture. Church does nothing for the poor and needy. That's a fact. Because they tell me it is. And then I look at the Trussell Trust, which is a Christian organization that specializes in food banks. And between April and September this year, its network provided 823,000 emergency food parcels to people in crisis. There are more than 1,200 food bank centers in the Trussell Trust network across the UK. The network Trussell Trust, the Christian network, accounts for two-thirds of all food banks. Look at the bigger picture. 
But the real joy was Monday when I opened Vanity Fair. What are you doing reading Vanity Fair? I was waiting for a haircut, all right, and there it was, all right, so I just opened it. And, uh, and I saw, oh, an atheist is investigating the churches in Los Angeles that are going through what's being called a new great awakening, all right? And the atheist reporter went to report on the churches in Los Angeles. He went to church, and he writes, I am in the mosh pit of Wales... Well, we- Start again. I'm in the mosh pit of West Hollywood's El Rey Theatre. A group of 20-somethings in jeans, sneakers, and colorful baggy shirts are singing about God while we gently shoulder bump one another. Great thing, shoulder bump. Perhaps the music group will try it. Soon, preacher Chad Veach takes the stage in a baseball cap. He bounces on the balls of his feet. Whenever he says anything vaguely profound, people yell, Wow! Which is the amen of cool young churches. Note all this. Wow! Don't you dare. (laughs) And at this point in the article, I thought, yeah, I've been here before many times. There'll be a bit more description And then he will dish the dirt and he will either mock the church or he will tear it to pieces or find some way in which it's hypocritical. But I read on. And he writes, the sermon suddenly feels authentic. The pastor asked us to write a wish for God and stick it on the wall. He asked the non-believers to accept Jesus and nearly 200 people raised their hands. And the wish for God? I wrote, says the journalist, I wrote, I want to believe. Put it on the wall. Look at the bigger picture, says Jesus to John. And then I came across Norma's story from nowhere. Norma had no church connection until she encountered Mind the Gap. Do you remember Mind the Gap two, three years ago, the Bishop of Durham, right behind it? It was Mind the Gap in Gateshead. And she writes, I became a follower of Jesus Christ three years ago. I had a drink problem. My home was full of rage and violence. At one stage, I thought I had killed my husband. I lost my family to drink. Three months after asking Jesus to come into my life, I was controlling my drinking habits. Three months after that, I was not drinking at all. And today, I've not had a drink for two and a half years. Jesus saved my life. How do I respond? I think I respond by saying, Lord, renew My vision. Open my eyes and open my ears. Maybe I'm too conscious sometimes of the enormous problems that people have and don't see clearly the vast power of Christ. Too conscious of the laughter of the world or its suspicion and unbelief to actually look for myself. So I need to pray with a week and a half to go, open my eyes and open my ears. And how shall I do that? 
Well, I think only as I find in Jesus the answer to my own painful areas of loss or sadness or what might have been, only as I experience his resurrection power in my life, only as I bring myself with all its woundedness and perhaps, who knows, guilt or self-dislike and sense and hear his healing word, daughter or son. Only as I bring my darkness and find his light. Only as I admit that I'm in the grip of powers that I can't break and experience his power and be given a voice to speak with confidence of everything that he's done for me and can do for others. And all this, as we come to Christmas, nudges me towards the prayer, open my eyes and open my ears, but also touch my heart. Are you the one that should come, or do we look for another? Don't look for another. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.